Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're joined by James Pethokoukos, a columnist and policy analyst at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Jim, thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me on. I appreciate it. So there's a few things that we wanted to talk to you about. Um, Obviously, it's hard to do any conversation these days that doesn't somehow touch on coronavirus and the uh, hoped hoped for recovery. Um, As we record this, this is the first day of Texas gradually reopening. And we kind of wanted to have a conversation with you about about the recovery, where we are in terms of how close do you think we are to really reopening the economy and and maybe some guidance from you on just how, how should we go about reopening the economy? Do you think that maybe it's a little bit too soon in some places? And just kind of get your overall thoughts. Well, uh, so we're a big country, you know, a continent size country. So it's really highly unlikely that what's good for one place uh, is good for another place. We really don't have a pandemic or epidemic in this country. We have lots of little ones kind of all starting to happen at the same time in sort of different stages uh, of the curve. So that's, that's why it's really, really hard to come up with one sort of um, one sort of rule or one sort of recommendation. Uh, I, cer- I mean, I certainly think that this initial shutdown was probably a pretty good idea to begin to get a little bit of control. Uh, of the virus, you know, but from here on out, I think one of the real constraints on on what we do is the economy. Uh, I think if the if the idea is we're just going to keep everything shut down until there's some amazing therapeutic or there's a vaccine, and that that needs to be the only uh, bit of guidance we have, and clearly that's not going to happen. I I don't think I don't think elected officials are going to go along with that. I think. People ultimately aren't going to go along with that. Yes, people are, are a lot of people are sort of fearful of going out, but risk preferences and risk tolerance, uh, I think, aren't static. And I think as we as people learn more, as people become a little bit more knowledgeable of what they can do on their own, and the fact that people are going to need a paycheck, I think those risk preferences change. And if government did nothing, people would start to really clamor. Uh, and I think you'd probably end up seeing a lot more civil disobedience. And I, I just think it's not going to happen where we're going to stay closed until there's a vaccine or really even uh, over the summer. I think we're sort of closer to the and indeed in some places are sort of are slowly reopening. But I would expect that over the summer uh, we may not be going to, to baseball games and we may be wearing masks and we may not be uh, going to any kind of crowded restaurants. But things will be a lot more open than they are right now. So one of the things I see that seems to be a talking point of the last few weeks is that it's really needs to be a precondition to op- reopening the economy that we have adequate testing. Where are we on that front? And is, is that really a valid precondition to reopening the economy when we're now up to, I think, 30 million people that have lost their jobs as a result of this virus? Well, I, th- I don't think there's any doubt that ideally we would like to have a, a test that is uh, that we can supply in much larger numbers. Ideally, it would be we'd be able to you'd be able to do it in your home, and you would be able to do it so you wouldn't have to stick a swab to the back of your nasal passage. That it could be in the front of your nose or the throat or something like that, and you could just wait, you know, five or ten minutes, and there would be. So that would be ideal. Clearly, that's not where we're at. We're nowhere close to that. 
and I haven't and listen. I'm you know some of the some of the listeners may have heard about you know Paul Romer's plan, the Nobel Prize winning economist, who I think would uh, want to test you know basically everybody every couple of days, and I, I think this would be like or a lot of us, I think it's like 20 million tests every two days. So everybody could test once a week, something like that. I think even he concedes that he'd be talking, if everything went perfectly to try to manufacture something like that, that we'd be talking about a uh, an autumn an autumn opening. I just, listen, uh, the, the economy is basically shut down for the second quarter of this year. Um, most of the forecasts you're going to see from Wall Street assume that we're not going to be shut down uh, in this, in the, in, you know, all, all summer. So you're really talking about something very different. All that pain, there'd be another three months of all that pain, another three months, months of businesses integration that I think that is just not going to happen. So we better figure out a way, given the kind of testing we have with some sort of reasonable incremental increase of making this work right now. So we don't have a, a third quarter like this terrible second quarter and first quarter. So I want to ask a couple things about just on the economic side of things. Um, first, of course, we have seen uh, a kind of mind-boggling number of unemployment claims. I guess we're up to 30 million now, uh, yeah. month, six weeks, however you want to count it. Um, and so uh, obviously that is, I think if you were to work that out, you're starting to talk 20% unemployment, you know, 30% unemployment, really high. Or like, yeah. And and the only reason we may not even see numbers that high is because you have to be you, know, you have to be looking for work to be counted as unemployed. Otherwise, they'll just say you've dropped out of the labor force. So if we don't see numbers that high, what we will see is labor force participation rates at levels uh, that we've never seen before, at least since we've been keeping statistics. But your point is well taken. Right. So I, I do wonder w whether those numbers. I mean. The situation is obviously a little different than in a typical recession because in a typical recession, typically something's gone wrong with the financial system or something something's been out of whack, and you know there are kind of deeper deeper problems in the economy. In this case, you have some combination of people who lost their jobs because of shutdown orders, and then also just because people don't want to leave their home to go to restaurants or they're putting off medical procedures. I guess a big part of the de decline is medical. So so I guess the, 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 my question is, does that bode well for a potential quicker recovery if you've if the basis of the unemployment numbers is completely driven by people being afraid of the virus and not wanting to go out and or governments being afraid of the virus and not wanting people to go out, as opposed to something where, you know, it, it, it's not like Barack Obama uh, or George Bush during the 2008-2009 crisis could have could have pushed a button that potentially would make a bunch of people be able to be employed again, right? Uh, when you, you know, when you hear about, you know, 15%, 20% employment, 30, 30 million people out of work, I think the expectation is somewhat what you're saying, that these are not sort of long-term unemployed, that uh, once people have sort of been given the word from public officials, uh, which is a powerful signal, even if, even if, even from the president, who, the president may not, you know, actually be shutting these states down, but if, when, when the federal government says it's okay, when you have governors saying okay, and people sort of have an idea of what they need, need to do to be safer, and businesses are opening up, and there's a certain requirement of people you know, going back to work, yeah, so you'll see that unemployment rate fall. Now, 
My concern has been to make sure that sort of during this pause, shutdown, quarantine, that the economy is sort of there for people to come back to, which is why I think it's been really important to, to sort of push money out the door to businesses or push loans to them. Uh, so they don't, uh, so they don't either disintegrate or they don't go into bankruptcy and you don't get people sort of disconnected from those companies. So there's sort of now granted over the longer term, there's probably going to be a lot of churn here, but for now, so people can, so people have somewhere to go back to. Yeah. So, so even if we see some really scary unemployment rate numbers over the next few months, you know, I, I would expect those to go back down a lot by the end of the year. Uh, I don't think, you know, I don't think it's, go- I, th- I don't think we're going back to three and a half percent anytime soon. Right. But sh- so, but we should be in a period where we're gonna, jobs will be generated and instead of being 20 percent unemployment. Maybe at the end of the year, you're, you know, maybe we're sitting there at, uh, you know, nine or 10, still super, super high during the Great Recession. That was sort of the peak unemployment, about 10 percent. And, uh, and and again, a lot of forecasts are assuming a big surge in the third quarter uh, and then, you know, faster than normal growth. uh at least for a little while beyond that. So, yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, if we, uh, if assuming there's not some really huge recurrence of the virus, and we've done a good enough job, sort of keeping the uh, economy sort of, you know, in uh, suspended animation uh, for uh, for a few months. Uh, yeah, so it, it we should be in much better shape coming out. But it's not going to remind anybody of what it was like when we were going into all this mess. So I, I went back and looked. And it turned out that the the Dow Jones uh, kind of hit its it hit its bottom on March twenty third, uh, which is ironically I think was the same day that New York announced its lockdown order. So it was about that that period. It was also, of course, the period when Congress was debating some of the uh, I mean the re- relief bill uh, that had the unemployment thing from the. The, the checks for everybody and the small business loans. And since mm-hmm. then, you know, if you were to just look at the stock market, you would think things are doing pretty well, right? I mean, it's it made up about half of the, the losses for the year uh, again, and, and things just, you know, it seems to be doing all right. So th- does that suggest that people are expecting a quick recovery uh, uh, where we could make up most of the lost output, as you were suggesting, over the over the rest of the year, and if so, I mean, how realistic is that? Given that you know the virus hasn't gone away, and presumably, people, in, unless unless you know we find the uh, the cure or some effective treatment or something, people are still going to be pretty wary about doing a lot of stuff. You know, I don't think that people are going to want to go to a lot of uh, movies or concerts or family cross country travel, well, you know, casinos, a lot, lot of stuff. So is it, I mean, how realistic is it that you could have the, the kind of massive rebound that seems to be that the market seems to be expecting? Right. Well, I don't, th- listen, I don't think there's an expectation that the rebound would be so strong that we'd sort of be back to where we were at. I think I think the expectation is a strong initial rebound and then maybe faster normal growth, but we're sort of not going to have GDP back to where it was, you know, for some time. Maybe, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we're talking, you know, 2022. And I think some of the things that you've just mentioned, uh, that sort of wariness is, is certainly going to play a role. Again, one of my concerns is that the, that we're going to have sort of a heightened, and, and this is with good reason, sort of a heightened you know, sort of aversion to risk sort of in all its forms, whether it's people, you know, spending money. So now, you know, savings rates have gone up. People don't want to spend money. Uh, I imagine that will, you know, that 
move out a little bit, but probably a little bit more cautious. Our business is going to be more cautious uh, about investing. You know, might we come to a point where the government might be like, you know, the, the deficit's too big and maybe we need to start cutting back or we need to, you know, raise some taxes. Uh, I know uh, Joe Biden is our next president. They have a giant tax cut plan. I don't know how that might change. The best as I can determine, if you start, if you, if you start telling folks on Wall Street since we're talking about the market, we're not going to have any good therapeutics. And uh, forget, and the vaccine is, you know, who knows? And, you know, we're going to have a bunch of outbreaks and it's horrible winter. And maybe it won't be as bad as what we just went through because everyone will be, you know, has turned their underwear into masks and <laughs> 10 feet. You know, if that's, I, I don't think the forecast would be anywhere near as good and they're not that good, you know, going going <laughs> forward. So again, there's a, there's a ton of uncertainty. When I see the market bouncing back, I think that low point, the way the way I like to describe it, when it was at the low point and just dropping and it was like, you know, taking out like a thousand points every, you know, every session, that I think it was, it was starting to price in like the I am legend scenario, you know, the Will Smith, zombie apocalypse, it's all going apart. So now I think we've moved into sort of the, uh, the more like the contagion scenario with Matt Damon, where society doesn't collapse, <laughs> but it's not great. So I, so yeah, so there's been some improvement there. Uh, but I think there's still a lot of uncertainty. And would it surprise me if we had another? I mean, remember, some of these models are showing, you know, almost no deaths over the summer. So who knows? So I, you know, it's it's a it's a you know it's a very dicey situation. And again, it would shock me if we have another sort of down leg here in stocks. Although I am not providing actionable investment advice <laughs> by no means. Right. Yeah. And I I asked not you know I I you're not a stock analyst and I. Uh, we're not expecting to do that. I just, it's, it's curious because, you know, people, people look to the market, some people because of their own personal investment, but it's also supposed to be, you know, a kind of barometer of what people are expecting for the, for the more general economy in the, in the, you know, medium term or whatever. Right. Yeah. So, so for, exactly. So it's for a while, it seemed like it was pricing in Armageddon and now it's, uh, you know, now it's, you know, pricing in you know, something considerably less than, uh, less than Armageddon. But I think I think, you know, the president likes to talk about the stock market. And I, you know, I think that's that's not crazy. It's sort of a real time information absorbing, calculating, disseminating device. And, I, you know, I certainly want to know what this what the market is doing. Uh, if I'm if I'm thinking about sort of these big picture economic issues. So a second ago, you when we were talking about the recovery, you it seemed you seem to indicate that businesses being willing to invest could be one aspect of how well the, the recovery goes. But I believe it was just yesterday that Senator Warren and AOC proposed some legislation that would uh, that would, I guess, ban mergers and acquisitions, equity investments during the pandemic. Have you have you taken a look at, th at that proposed legislation? And what do you think about it? What would be the effect of banning equity investments during the recovery? Right. Uh, I think we want to be, listen, let's say mergers and acquisitions. So that means you have two parties getting together who have some sort of plan to sort of improve their situations during a very difficult economic time. Yeah, do I do I want government to, you know to take a look at that? Sure, but you need to at least give a tiny benefit of a doubt that's that someone has a plan during perhaps the craziest period in economic history that somebody has a plan that to be viable over the over the long term because that's what that's what that means to me. So for Washington to say, "No, you know what? We know better." We have a blanket ban on that. I think it's a little crazy. Listen, uh, I think one reason uh, why the U.S. economy 
has been so innovative. And let's just let's just take during the Great Depression. You know, the 1930s was actually a pretty good year for productivity and innovation in this country. And, you know, one reason is that, you know, some of the initial efforts, you know, during the New Deal to really regulate the economy down to a micro level uh, were pushed back on and didn't happen. I think we don't want to replicate sort of the worst lessons uh, of the Great Depression. And you have someone like you know, Elizabeth Warren, her, her whole thing is that the government just needs to be a lot more involved in the economy to, so it can generate very specific in, uh, outcomes, even though there's not really a record of that ever working. Right. So I'm sure this will not be the, you know, the, you know, she wants to tell businesses how to invest, how much to invest. We don't want you to buy back stock. We don't want you to pay dividends. And we don't want you to merge. Uh, I think that I think that sort of extreme disruption in the economy is really a recipe for this not being uh, a really fantastic recovery on the other side. It, it seems to me that this is another one of these cases where I think I think Jonah Goldberg referred to it as the uh, a, a confirm your priors epidemic. Uh, you know, where as you, basically she's coming into it with a certain point of view, and so that has to be the the solution in in, in this, this this situation. And I know for myself. I keep seeing all these different articles out there about predicting what life is going to be like after the recovery. And I haven't found that many of them to be all that compelling. Can you sort of look into your crystal ball and tell us what you think, what what will be different and how similar will life be? How similar will life and business be, you know, after we sort of get over the hump and maybe find a vaccine? Well, let me, let me just... Uh... Uh, just, just one more thing about people sort of, you know, looking at this crisis and saying like, oh, those ideas I've been advocating for 20 years, now more than ever, we need to do those ideas. This is exactly how, what we need to do. Fantastic timing. Uh, I think you have, you have a lot of people uh, on the left who are really sort of stuck in sort of the, the great financial crisis mode where they see what's happening and they think this is a failure of business. It's a failure of capitalism. And, and and now is the time for government. To, you know, we, we've swung too far to some sort of laissez-faire, you know, pure market economy. And now we need to rebalance the economy with a lot more government inter- intervention. Maybe you can kind of try to make that case in, in, during the financial crisis. That really does not seem to be the case right now. Uh, I think most people, if you look at our institutions and see sort of what seems to really be working and what's not, uh, the private sector um, you know, you know, Amazon seems to be working pretty well. All these tech companies seem to be, uh, you know, working pretty well. Companies that no longer have, you know, businesses uh, because people are too afraid to use them. I don't think that's really their fault, nor do I think it's the fault of companies uh, for not keeping, you know, three months, uh, you know, a three month rainy day fund in case of a pandemic. Uh, no one was, has ever expected these companies to do that. And I know people like AOC and Elizabeth Warren have been saying, well, if they hadn't bought back all that stock, if they hadn't given dividends, they'd have all this extra money. Of course, uh, no one was asking them to do that. They, you know, People uh, like Elizabeth Warren may not have liked buybacks, but they weren't saying you need to keep that money in a rainy day fund. They were saying you need to spend that money in the way that I want you to spend that money, whether it's on investment or higher worker salaries or what have you. So for right now, to, to view this, uh, and I know, you know, and I know there's plenty of people on the left and, you know, you know Democratic socialists who are trying to paint this as, you know, the, you know, the last stage of late capitalism. That, that to me is like a complete misreading, because if there's anything that doesn't seem to be working very well, uh, it's government, which is not sort of has not really done what it's supposed to do, which is sort of, you know, be prepared for these big disasters. And that's sort of, you know, public goods. And, you know, where's our strategic stockpiles? And, 
Uh, where's our stockpile of masks and ventilators? You know, this doesn't seem like much of a black when we've had uh, some pretty big outbreaks, uh, you know, you know, during the 21st century. So I, I don't really fundamentally see this as uh, capitalism. Yeah. And then what, you want to, like what, what, what thing or what things going to look like on the other side? You know, probably not exactly the way it looks today. Uh, I, I'm that said, uh, you know, are we going to spend money on, you know, on changing around the healthcare system, uh, you know, new healthcare infrastructure? You know, maybe uh, I, I'm skeptical of the idea that we're all going to abandon our cities. I'm skeptical of the idea that people are never going to go to restaurants anymore and that, you know, we're never going to go to baseball game. You know, some of those are pretty, I mean, people have been going to restaurants for a long time and people sort of been moving to cities for a long time. And I think all that assumes, you know, sort of we don't make progress on vaccines or or therapeutics. So I think in some very big ways, uh, I think things are going to be uh, uh, much, much like they were before. I hope what changes. I mean, you know, I don't have any great predictions about our everyday life beyond what I just said, but I hope one thing we want to focus on is we have to sort of, you know, you know, get serious about what kind of, you know, economy we want, what kind of government we want. Do we want things to work? You know, do we want government to have really, really old computer systems or, you know, or do we not? Uh, do we want to have uh, an infrastructure physical and digital uh, that is appropriate for the 21st century. We might want to think about that. Do we want? Do we want to have regulations that make it that make it sort of you know hard for people to do telemedicine or regulations that make it hard for health workers to move from one state to the all this kind of sort of sand in the system, which we've sort of tolerated and which has I think helped contribute to an economy that's sort of just not growing as fast as it's used used to, and there are other reasons as well. Unless we want, listen, we've already sort of downshifted uh, from like a 3% economy before the Great Recession to a 2% economy since. I'm very concerned that we're going to be downshifting to like a 1% or zero handle economy going forward. So I think we need to start taking these things seriously. We need to start solving problems and become sort of a forward-looking, future-oriented society across a range of issues. Or it's going to, or we you know we may not have a long depression, but we may have a long period of stagnation that feels like a depression. So uh, you, you mentioned the critics of capitalism from the left, but um, it's it's starting capitalism is starting to get some some critiques from the right. And one of those is Senator Marco Rubio. Um, I believe he has criticized American companies for not innovating enough. And I see this from a few other places. So two questions there. Do you, do you think that there's a, a valid criticism that American companies are, are somehow not innovating enough? And, and then the second question is, from your perspective, what, what would be good policy to actually foster more innovation? Well, um, I believe Senator Rubio's thesis is a work in progress and sort of ever evolving. I think a lot of Republicans have sort of reacted to the election of President Trump by try, trying to incorporate his argument sort of into their existing sort of uh, cosmology about the way the way the world works. And um, so, you know, you see people sort of, you know, you know, I think fumbling around for ideas. So and a lot of the ideas that I hear Republicans talk are really ideas that, you know, folks on the left have been talking about and they're sort of there and they're handy and they've grabbed them such as the idea that all these American companies are victims of short-term thinking or short-termism, uh, and all they want to do is, spend, again, spend money on buybacks and help their shareholders and heck with everything else. The evidence, and I've, and I've looked at that, and I, at times I've been a little bit sympathetic, but I think the evidence just doesn't, that this really just doesn't appear to be the case. And what I find weird is that 
The companies which certainly aren't doing that, the companies which are investing a ton of money in, uh, in you know, R&D, which uh, are, are, you know, super innovative, where they're generating you know, lots of high paying jobs, you know, your technology companies, well, they're also a problem. So the companies that are doing what you want are a problem. And the companies that you don't think are doing what you want, they're a problem too. Uh, so I, th you know, to me, so it, there's a little bit, there's a weird sort of, you know, disconnect or tension in that argument. And uh, listen, uh, U.S. productivity growth, super important. It's really the basis of, you know, long-term higher living standards it has sort of downshifted the United States, but it's also downshifted across advanced economies. So it's hard to point to necessarily a, a U.S. specific reason why that's uh, been the case. Part of it, part of it, I think it's just coming up with good ideas. It's harder. You know, we're sort of further along the technological frontier. Um, I think there are some specific things we, we, we could do better. One, make it easier for people to start companies and grow companies. I think you want to have government do more of what it's supposed to be doing, such as, uh, you know, in investing more in science. I think we could be doing a lot more of that. Um, I, th I think all those things. But I, I, I fundamentally don't think that we're in some sort of late stage of capitalism and that w the kind of capitalism we've had for the past decades has somehow you know, led us astray. So either we have to have some radically new kind of capitalism or we need to have, you know, go or, or now you know, we're finally having our socialist moment. Um, that I don't think so. Well, I think one of the things that's it's maybe a little bit ironic is this idea that, that companies are not spending enough money on R&D, but and, and, you know, and with the idea that we need more uh, more jobs for American workers. But it seems to me that companies that are spending more money on R&D are likely to actually be investing in automation or artificial intelligence. And I think that's one of the areas that if, if we look to what might change after the recovery or during the recovery i could see more automation simply because right now one of the you know one of the great we're, we're talking about a pandemic of uh, you know a disease that's spreading with human transmission obviously and it's happening in the workplace so it seems to me that if you're an employer if you're a company you might look to automation as a way to reduce some of that risk so I kind of want, you know, I know that you've talked, written a lot about automation in the past and, and, and have written about the, you know, the future of the workplace and such. And so can you talk about that for just a moment? What, you know, what do you think the, the future of automation looks like? Yeah, listen, you know, that's entirely possible. And in businesses where you could find some other way that doesn't involve, uh, especially some of these consumer, whether it's consumer facing businesses or whether it's an Amazon warehouse, if you can, you know, have fewer humans involved in the process. Uh, especially if we don't have great, you know, great vaccines or therapeutics, that that might be the case. Uh, recently, the venture capitalist Mark Andreessen he wrote this essay uh, about about I think it's called "Time to Build" and we need to build more things in the United States. And one of the things he talked about is you know we need to have these like super advanced robotic fa you know factories so we can build stuff here, not in China. Of course, while I'm sure those will create some high paying jobs, uh, it's not going to look like you know a, a Ford plant in 1950. Uh, it's not going to look like the Gary Steelworks in the 1960s. Uh, there's going to be a lot of robots and probably not nearly that many uh, that many human workers. So that doesn't mean we, you know, that doesn't mean we should stop technological progress. It just means we have to think hard about. You could look at sort of some some kind of progress is automation. You know, where you're kind of you're going to kind of replace workers. Then there's the kind of progress where you give workers 
You can help them become more productive and do more and enables them. Or you're creating you know, brand new kinds of jobs and brand new kinds of businesses. That other kind of technological progress. I mean, we need both, but that other kind is really important too. And that's why I think it's important to make sure that we have a tax and regulatory code that encourages uh, that companies to start and then grow big. And also as the, it gives them the kind of sort of science research foundation that they can then turn into new, uh, new, new, new business sectors. Uh, so uh, we, so we, we, we want to make sure that we're, yes, we're generating lots of good jobs and part of that is going to be technological progress. But we also want to have sort of the right kind uh, of technological progress. And, I, you know, and for all the concerns about automation, what was like two months ago, we had three and a half percent unemployment and pretty much the entire, you know, we're getting pretty close to full employment. Wages were rising. Yet, that event, yet at that exact moment, we were worried about robots taking all the jobs. So sometimes it's just kind of a, a fun thing to talk about. And especially for people who want to be sort of future oriented, especially for people who kind of would just like there to be a universal basic income from everybody. And they're sort of looking around for reasons to make that case. Uh, three months ago, they were making the case for ro robots. Now they're making the case that uh, we have such an unstable economy. That's why we need a universal basic income. So, so some people, they, they like the idea of automation uh, because they think it bolsters some other policy argument. So there's obviously the argument that the robots are going to come take our jobs, but the other conversation that's going on a lot these days is about China. And there's there's one that is the the issue of sort of just the, the, the concerns about outsourcing and China taking jobs. And then there's, there's potentially more sort of selective issues about China. And we don't have to go into all those about IP and things of that nature. But in the, in the case of the, uh, the, you know, the response to this pandemic, one of the critiques about our trade policy has been that we are over-reliant on China and other countries as far as our medical supply chain. Um, and that we need to, you know, going forward, we need to decouple from China, particularly when it comes to medical supplies. Um, what do you think about those type of arguments? Well, again, I, you know, I, I've heard sort of different analyses about how much of our medical supply chain uh, is is run through China and how critical those components are. And I cer and I and I certainly can see that if there are key, uh, you know, key, uh, you know, key, key items, whether it's sort of you know, uh, you know, specific medicines or things that, or or ingredients for medicines, uh, just as you wouldn't want the Chinese, you know, you know, building your aircraft carriers, you know, there might there might be a a case for that. But to me, that still seems to be a a small part of our total sort of trading relationships. Do we not, you know, do we not want iPhones to be assembled, not designed, mind you, but but sort of put together in China? Should that be a big concern? Is that a national security issue? I don't think it is. And even even a lot of this protective gear, where we're wondering, oh, why are we making all this in the United States? One, I think there's sort of a, a, a good reason to have sort of a diverse supply chain that's not, not all in your country. But also, we you know we could have just bought like, all this protective equipment on the open market at a you know at at a good price and stockpiled it here. Uh, I mean, when does your time frame begin? Now, in the middle of a crisis? Yeah, it'd probably be great if we made it all here. But maybe with a little preparation, we would already have that stockpile. So you can also look at it that way. Um, you know, fundamentally, uh, I and and this is maybe a fundamental difference is that I think it's a good thing that the U.S. economy is subject to the source of competitive pressures 
that exists when you're involved in a robust global trading environment. I think that ultimately makes you a more innovative and productive economy. I think a lot of people who don't want that, uh, they don't think that's a good thing. And they think having sort of the dynamism of an economy where there's churn, where businesses open and close, and people aren't going to work the same place for 50 years, uh, they think that's bad. They would like a they would they would accept a, a a much they would accept a lower standard of living and a less dynamic economy and less sort of new products and new services generated by that economy if if it it was if it was in their minds more stable. Now you can wonder ultimately how stable such an economy would be. But I think they just don't like that. They just they that's not a world they want. They have a, a vision of America. And this, you know, it's also especially true. I think people who've actually never lived in those decades who seem to be promoting this view America of, <laughs> that they perhaps saw on a TV sitcom where it's where it's women's, you know, the wife stays home, man goes to work, uh, you know, he's home by five thirty. That's that's sort of the world they're imagining. Again, uh, you know, nineteen fifties, early nineteen sixties. Again, that wasn't everybody's world, and for most people, that wasn't ever sort of their uh, uh, their reality. And they just don't like the idea of the side of disruption that is sort of inherent in a vibrant capitalist economy. Right, right. So we just had a, uh, a, a podcast with J.D. Vance. Um, in fact, that just uh, aired um, on May 1st. And uh, we had, a, I think we had a pretty good spirited conversation. Uh, I would say he and I don't really uh, see eye to eye on a lot of things, but it was still a good collegial conversation. And I think it's sort of a... Um, a precursor of a lot of the conversations that we're likely to see after November. I mean, come November, we're either going to have a Joe Biden presidency or we're going to have Donald Trump sort of as a lame duck. And I think at that point, we're likely to see, you know, the current, you know, before the pandemic, there was already this debate going on within the conservative movement about the future of conservatism. And it seems like come November, that's going to really ramp up What's your take on that? Where do you see the the future of the conservative movement? Um, well, I, I think I think you have uh, politicians who think like that that's the path forward. That you have sort of this uh, new, um, you know, demographically changing Republican Party. So uh, to be viable in that party, uh, you have to seem more sort of uh, a business skeptical. Uh, you have to sort of buy into the arguments. That actually things that, you know, things have been terrible for 40 or 50 years. The kinds of arguments where uh, traditionally you would only hear them on the left. People who have said that, boy, ever since Ronald Reagan took the oath of office in January 1981, things have been terrible. And Republicans would always say, oh, things actually haven't been terrible. But now, uh, because they have a lot of workers who maybe, uh, you know, that that's sort of their worldview. Well, now we've that now that's the worldview. So actually things actually have been terrible. Uh, since the 1980s, and uh, and, and, and again, I assume we'll I I assume uh, we'll see more of that. I hope I hope there are people who sort of uh, will make the other case that the only way fundamentally to have a, a a society that generates a growing, vibrant society that generates increasing opportunity for people and raises people's living standards, you know, for everybody, that the only way to do that. Is through a uh, a dynamic market capitalist uh, uh, economy where where businesses rise, businesses fall, people take risks, 
um, that, you know, people lose jobs and hopefully have a good safety net. And then, you know, so they tie them over until they get their next job, uh, that we have a side that's not afraid to take risks. It's not afraid of churn. Um, I think that's fundamentally the only way you, you, you get those things and they're sustainable all, uh, over a long period of time. I think the other path, I think that that's a, that's a path that looks a lot more like Europe. That's a lot more like stagnation where you have a, maybe you have a much bigger welfare state. You really don't generate a lot of innovation. You really don't generate a lot of productive new companies. And that's fine. People live in Europe and they seem to be, uh, to be, you know, pretty happy. And that's the future, uh, you know, we want and, you know, abandon, you know, abandon our great, you know, advantages like being a place people want to come to to make their life better and all their ideas and energy. We think we don't want to do that anymore. That's fine. I guess we'll, we'll, we'll go that route. But I think it's a very different kind of America, and I think it's a lesser America. Well, for me, I think one of the things that has been the most difficult to deal with during this time, and I think that will be a real sign that we have started the recovery, is that when I wake up in the morning and have coffee, that I don't just go read the political news and the, the financial news, but that I get to start my day the way I want to and read about my Houston Astros. How you write a lot about, well, first off, you make a lot of digs at the Astros and I'll forgive you for that. But what do you think about the prospects of the uh, Major League Baseball actually having a season this this year? Uh, it's very hard to make an unbiased analysis. I want there to be baseball so badly uh, that uh, every scenario is like, sure, that sounds great. Let's 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 do that. Um, you know, play, play, have, you know, all the, the whole league just operate in two or three states. Hey, that's fine. Have them all operate one place in some sort of biodome uh, bubble. Um, hey, that, that's fine too. I, my, my sort of longer term prediction here has been first game is on independence day, July four, few weeks for spring training and, 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 and it'll, you know, maybe they play a hundred games. That's fine. Maybe they play the, the playoffs in, at neutral sites. And that's fine too. There's a lot. There's a huge incentive on both sides, both owners and players, uh, to play the season. Uh, not to mention, you know, uh, tons, tons of fans. So I think ultimately those incentives are going to be so powerful that 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 will um, that that will see the, see the, see the games. Um, I think the PGA is going to start up in in mid June. They're talking about the NBA maybe playing all their games at Disney World. It's a little bit easier for the NBA because they're sort of at the end of their season, and and you know they can they can you know they can play indoors, and there's lots of basketball arenas. It's a little harder for baseball, but uh, I, but I, I'm not even willing to contemplate they're not being. I'm more positive about baseball than the NFL because then the NFL you may you may run into you know winter and another outbreak. That's why I think we'll sneak baseball in. Well, I think that optimistic note is a good place to end it. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Great, thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urban Cowboys.